You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, October 6th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So there were, this is one of those weeks when there was just so many different things to talk about. We had to right? yeah, pick and choose. So we decided we're going to do all of the Nobel Prizes next week. And we're trying to actually set up an interview with a Nobel expert as well. But So all Nobel next week. And we're going to do different items this week. Have you guys been harassed by any evil clowns oh recently? <laughs> oh, recently. My Absolutely Twitter feed not, has no. been, for sure. No, but... You know why? Why are you <laughs> referencing the fact that there's random people? Well, I don't know how how widespread it is now, but like running around parks and stuff, trying to scare people. I think it's pretty yeah. widespread. Is evil clown redundant? It, yeah. So who knows what's happening? People are just spontaneously, I guess, look <laughs> trying to look like menacing clowns in public areas. But spontaneous clown <laughs> explosion. It's, <laughs> it's, it's taking a on a mass delusional aspect of it as well. Oh, so awesome! At mm. uh, <laughs> but my where my wife works. Uh, they had at Sacred Heart University. They had you know a warning about clowns were sighted, and people were saying that they saw it. There were all these witnesses, but no pictures, no evidence whatsoever. It was always somebody else saw it. And Panda then, on the train tracks. Yeah. Then uh, at my daughter's <laughs> school to this morning, we get an email saying, "Just want to let your parents know there was a clown sighting this morning. And <laughs> we had the oh police out God. here. Yes, you know." Yes. <laughs> Amazing. But they didn't find anything. But what what have the clowns actually done? <laughs> they just scare people, right? They scare people. I think a couple of them have brandished a knife or something. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, so that's not that's not were, cool. Were, and yeah, they shouldn't go injured. chasing people either. They they start to run at people and you know that you're just asking for you know trouble it, there. Yeah. This really pisses me off because <laughs> clowns are awesome because they're cooler Fear of fear of clowns is ubiquitous. So many people are afraid of them. I had the best time in my haunted corn maze freaking people out. People would run through my, my evil tent. And it just kind of pisses <laughs> oh, me off. Too, Bob. It pisses me off that, you know, now people are like, oh, you know, you shouldn't dress as a clown at the Halloween party. And, and now clowns are truly considered evil, not just kind of like in a, in a, in a phobia sort of way. I heard clown costume sales are up 300%. That's wow. right. 300%. It's the rever- it's the Barbra Streisand effect basically. Oh, clowns are bad. Don't don't dress as clowns. Go, everyone goes to get a clown Wait, costume. Wait, how is that the Barbra Streisand effect? That's uh, the uh, you know, it's the uh, opposite of uh, intended uh, what you intended in the first place. The op- the exact opposite of that. Uh, yeah, have you heard that? that no, specific- I'm not getting the reference at all. Barbara Streisand, uh, had, there was some horrible article about her in the National Enquirer, so she sued them. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, that story became 10 times more widespread. Uh, so then the Barbara Streisand effect refers to when you try to suppress, suppress. something, it right, just like becomes all that sounds. more popular or yeah, widespread. Like, yeah. Exactly Okay, right. okay. Don't push the red button. Got it. Got yeah. it. Right, right. Westworld. I, I saw it. I loved it. I did it. not see it yet. Episode Is it good? One. I want to I watch it. I've just been out of town. It's worth it? I thought oh, it was yeah. really cool. It was different. Cool. 
it has potential. One episode, it's hard to say, but it is. <laughs> it's a great uh, story that was done really poorly in the 1970s. So it's a perfect topic you know, to cover. It's a, it's a perfect remake because there's a lot of depth that was left unexplored in the very superficial treatment that they did in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but the idea is interesting. So if they do a good job of it, and it looks like so far they they are adding a lot of interest and depth to it then uh, it, it could turn out to be good. And that's HBO, right? It is. It's yeah. an HBO. Yeah, HBO. Mini, is it miniseries or is it, it going to be? It says they're trying to do for science fiction what Game of Thrones did for fantasy. But you I know. see. Right. I see. Cool. That's, that's a high bar. Episode it one is. set it up nicely because you have the feeling of now what's coming. You can you can tell that things are going to get wild. <laughs> and like, Is it based on a book or anything or just, just a movie that they're really I think cr- Crichton. Didn't yeah, Crichton Michael Crichton. Yes, Michael oh, Crichton. Cool. So yeah, the original movie the was was pretty cool. I mean, I haven't seen it I probably loved Michael in, Crichton. in 30 years. but I remember really enjoying that movie. Steve, you said it was a poorly made movie and, and I th- probably by today's standards, I'm sure it is, but I remember as a, as a young, you know, as a young teenager, really, really liking it. And, um, What's his name? The the uh, the Western, the black Yule Brenner. Yule Brenner. Brenner did a fantastic job. He was really uh, intimidating and uh, and he, kind of like a template for for the Terminator. You know, the the evil robot. Mm. Yeah, he was um, like the Terminator. That's true. He really it, was. It was fine for the 1970s. Yes, but my absolutely. point my point is that the the treatment of the topic was very superficial. Like well, it's yeah. a movie, hour well, and a half movie. All sure. the the robots go crazy, but there's never a reason why. You know, they oh, never yeah. really explore what happens. It just happens. You know, and here they're really exploring what, you know, like, it's artificial intelligence. Like, are, are they mm-hmm. actually intelligent or do they feel, do they not feel? Is it a simulation? I get a sense that, you know, it's, it's going to get even more interesting as yeah. opposed My- to, oh, everything, the, the, you know, park gone haywire, you know. Well, that's it's, cool it's because, because there's real, science to back up the sci-fi now whereas in the 70s in a lot of ways ai was like fantasy it's a black box yeah yeah, yeah much, so much i could so. see there being more nuance to the story now and now there the were two things it. my two favorite things there was a a fantastic twist yeah that uh that you won't say totally is, totally got me i won't say it but i loved it secondly there was a brief <laughs> there was a brief scene where the with a head programmer who was uh what's his name oh anthony hopkins fava beans yes anthony hopkins he turns on like one of the oldest uh robots uh first gen relatively unsophisticated robots and t- i'm curious to see if you guys picked up on this too so they showed this robot he was it was actually a fantastic robot by today's standards but it was clearly not sophisticated compared to the it to wasn't the essentially to the essentially human like ones that they have now totally human this right. one was unsophisticated but i when i watching this older robot in action i tell me if you guys felt it i felt like i was watching an audio animatronic from disney they yes. caught yeah. they caught the man mm-hmm. they i think they so specifically funny. looked at them and copied the the mannerisms they made it a little bit more sophisticated than the audio animatronics but clearly it was derived from that and i thought that was a wonderful and uh, kind of subtle touch well bob get us started with forgotten superheroes of science surely this week i'm going to talk about rosa smith eigenman 1858 to 1947, she was a pioneer woman ichthyologist who, along with her husband, discovered over 150 species of fish. Eigenman was a natural-born naturalist. She, loving you know, natural history as a little girl, 
Um, she was also, she was the first woman to get a full membership in the San Diego Society of Natural History. And that was just the first of her firsts, I think. Uh, she discovered the blind goby, Athanops eos, very cool name, which is a blind and unpigmented uh, fish, um, as an adult. Her talent caught her future husband's eye and together they made quite a scientific duo. Eigenman became the first woman to attend graduate level classes at Harvard. Impressive studying cryptogamic botany. Uh, cryptogams are essentially plants that reproduce through spores. Ultimately, she published 37 papers, uh, 12 by herself. Quite impressive, especially considering the time frame we're talking about here. She was president of the w- uh, Women's National Science Club in 1895. And I found it really interesting uh, uh, that while, while president, she gave a lecture called Women in Science. Uh, she talked about problems still relevant today, like how difficult it is to do quality research uh, while also being a wife and a mother, uh, which she was. She also argued that women doing good work in science should be recognized and praised for their quality of science alone and not as science done by a woman, which was a hell of a statement to, to make before uh, 1900. So remember Rosa Smith Eigenman? Mention her to your friends. Perhaps when discussing bryophytes, streptophytes, or even plastidless protists. Like you do. <laughs> yeah. It happens. All yeah. that fighting. Like yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, Evan. Yeah. I understand there's a bit of a hubbub about putting a telescope in Hawaii. Hubbub? Yeah, there, there oh, is. What's the deal? Oh. Hawaiian yeah. telescope hubbub. Hubbub. <laughs> well, there's a controversy surrounding the 30-meter telescope and its proposed location of Mauna Kea, Hawaii. It's in the news, particularly this month, because there's going to be a new round of hearings where people in favor of building and installing the 30-meter telescope, which I'll call TMT for short, on the mountain of Mauna Kea. And the hearing, there will be, at the hearing, there will also be people against the construction. Now, obviously, those in favor of the TMT going up on Mauna Kea are, of course, scientists, researchers, engineers, the universities and private organizations that have been involved in the TMT project from all over the world. The people against are the natives who feel that their home is being infringed upon and has been infringed upon enough for the 13 telescopes which they have already allowed to date, which includes the Keck telescopes that we often mention on on this show. And the divide has been going on for years. It came to a head, actually, back in 2014 when there was a scheduled official groundbreaking to take place. Now, understand that scientists first conceived of this project back actually in the late 90s is when scientists started to work on this. So think about it in 2014. It's it's more than 15 years later, the culmination of all this work, and five of those years were working on just determining the ideal location on the planet for the TMT. And then the day comes... Everything's happening on groundbreaking day, and it all comes to a screeching halt. The residents of Mauna Kea decided to stage an intervention on the ceremony, and they made a very passionate plea and ultimately an insistence that their positions be heard on the matter, that their feelings be known and they have their say in this. The New York Times article has a link to the video from that day, and you can, act, you can see it for yourself, the sincerity of these people, truly deep deeply. They feel slighted. They feel like that they are being taken advantage of, and they've decided enough is enough. That they're going to stand up for what they believe is just. So the groundbreaking did not take place that day, 
and it's now working its way through the legal process. And the hearings this month, more than two years since that groundbreaking day, will commence and will likely be the beginning of the final decision as to whether or not the TMT will be allowed to be erected on Mauna Kea. Wow. These are, these are complicated. You know, you try to be sort of fair and unbiased when you evaluate this. You know, on the one hand, you know, there, there's a legitimate point here in that historically, you know, the Hawaiians have been taken advantage, advantage of by Western colonialism. And so they're very sensitive. They're very sensitive about, you know, foreigners coming in and doing stuff to land that they consider to be not only historically theirs, but sacred. Uh, so I totally get that. You know, we, you know, pretty much took their property and, uh, they, they have a right, I think, to be consulted and, you know, to be, um, involved in the process of deciding what happens. And part of the, the reason why the court just said, okay, you, we're, we're rescinding the permit for this is that they said you didn't go through the proper process. You never should have been given the permit in the first place because you, there wasn't a process of allowing for public comment. So we have to now back up do it the right way and go through the public comment period. So that's what's happening now. But on the other hand, I think that, you know, they're picking this as a symbolic issue. And I don't think that this telescope is going to hurt anybody. You know what I mean? They're saying, oh, last time they built the telescope, there was garbage on the ground. All right, come on, really? They'll clean up the freaking garbage. I mean, that's what all you got was that they <laughs> they dropped some garbage during construction. Or they say it doesn't look nice. You know, it, that's the, it's like a NIMBY kind of thing. Like, I don't want these windmills in my backyard or whatever. I thought of that yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. First of all, mm -hmm. that's totally subjective. I think they're beautiful. What's, what's prettier than an observatory on the top of a mountain? I mean, they're gorgeous. But that is, that's subjective. I totally get that. So, you know, I think environmentally, et cetera, everything, there's really no objective harm that's being done. They're just using this as a symbolic. We don't want the colonialists to have their way with us anymore, which is legitimate. So it's, right. it gets complicated. You want to be fair to everybody. So uh, obviously the best solution is if they can work it out with the local community. You know, if the astronomers can say, hey, all right, tell us what we can do to make you happy. Tell us what you'd like to have happen. And they are. They're, they are making a lot of overtures like, hey, OK, we'll give millions of dollars to local education. You know, we mm -hmm. will whatever. They're, they're, they'll they'll wow. give a lot back to the community. And there are people in the community who are totally in favor of this because they realize this is just going to be a net benefit for them. And there's not really any harm. And it's just one more building you know, on the mountaintop. I, yeah, let's just hope that they work it out, that everybody could be happy. But if, if they're trying to make a point about this and be unreasonable, you know, then it could, it could get sticky. Um, and that would be unfortunate because this really is one of the few places in the world where this telescope can go. And if it's not going to be here, then they're going to build it in India or somewhere else. You know, they're looking at other places around the world, which are not as ideal, but, you know, we'll have to do. Yeah, this is considered the ideal location. Again, they spent five years just determining where the yeah. TMT should go. The TMT is an amazing instrument. If you can give me a minute, I'll tell you just a little bit about it. Um, by unofficial consensus, which means from what I've seen about it online, uh, the, T the TMT is the technological peak of telescopes. Space.com declares it to be the most powerful telescope ever built. Well, that will be built. Ground wow. telescope? Or Ground just telescope. Tel oh, okay. Well, ever. Any telescope. More and powerful way better, than Hubble? More powerful than Galileo's. 
Well, Kara, what- Kara, the ground-based, te- the big ground-based telescopes are bigger and more powerful than Hubble. The Hubble's advantage is that it's in space. Is that it's in space? Yeah, so yeah. it can it's go a, past. But Especially but now they, they use adaptive optics. That's what they're going to do. They're going to use adaptive optics on a thirty on a thirty meter to whoa on a thirty meter telescope. That will really probably, incredible. Th- that will probably be better than Hubble in yeah. lots of wavelengths. Bob, yeah. they're saying fifteen times sure. clearer than wow. Hubble images, and that's better probably than, uh, a conservative estimate. Yeah, James Webb. That's the question. Better than James I mean, Webb? Probably in some bo- areas. Maybe in some areas. Not all. It's going to work, and it will work in concert with the James Webb Telescope. Cool. The two will make measurements together and oh, put together. Oh my team. gosh! What a you're team! See, and of course, <laughs> you know. When you're when you're looking through telescopes, you're looking back in time, which is really what this is about. We're going to be able to look back in time further than ever. We're going to be heading right back about as uh, as close to the Big Bang as we've ever observed before. Really, really incredible. And for as much as we love the Hubble telescope, I mean, God bless the Hubble, right? It, it, its mirror at the time was state of the art for its day, right? The Hubble's mirror. 2.4 meters in diameter and it's a disc it's like a big compact disc in a tube in space so essentially but but with with the tmt what you have are a series of mirrors hexagon shaped all linked together and and controlled with computers it creates this sort of larger hexagonal ish sort of pattern yeah so it is like james Hexagon. webb in that way because yeah that's it, what james webb looks like yeah, no, that's, that's right. right. That's, yeah. That was the breakthrough that enabled us to get bigger and bigger telescopes. We were cool. at the limits of like just building one giant piece of glass. Way once too we, heavy. Once Way we had the heavy. computer power that we in real time could focus multiple pieces of glass, then we were able to build the really big telescopes. And the, the TMT is the just the latest manifestation of that technological breakthrough. Wow, i got to read up on this. The TMT will break through the twinkle of stars. They will see stars clearer than have ever been measured before. The spectroscopy equipment that comes with it, of course, state-of-the-art. You're going to They're going to be able to measure things like never before. And you want more? How about dark matter? TMT is going to analyze or assist in analyzing the structure of dark matter. And it yeah. will conduct experiments which complement or expand on the work being done at the Large Hadron Collider. So they got to get the locals excited about astronomy. That, yeah. That's that's yeah, the solution that's part, to this. That's part of it. It shouldn't be hard. That's part of it. And they have a track record doing so. It's easy. It's cool. Uh, all right. We'll see. We'll, we'll definitely keep track of this because I de- hope, yeah. definitely hope this works out. Fingers all crossed. All right. Kara, I understand that weed screws up your brain. <laughs> yeah. So um, so this one got my social media feeds really riled up this week. So I thought I need to discuss it on SGU. I posted a news article from Live Science by author Agatha Blasic Box called Heavy Marijuana Use May Damage the Brain. And I put it both on Facebook and Twitter and people went apeshit. Especially Spicoli. Spicoli. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Fast times at Ridgemont High. You hear that? That's my head. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, though, you guys, lots of sacred cows with marijuana. I am am learning. To start, though, I understand a little bit of the upset. The write-up in live science is not an amazing representation of the actual source article. It was – the source article is in press right now in pediatric neurology. It's called Adverse Structural and Functional Effects of Marijuana on the Brain, Evidence Reviewed by David Mandelbaum and Suzanne de Lamont from Rhode Island Hospital, which is affiliated with Brown. And just to be clear, it is a literature review. It's not a meta-analysis. So what they really did is they looked at all of the available literature on long-term effects of heavy marijuana use. Um, They said at the very beginning of the review that there's a lot of really bad 
um, studies out there, just poor quality studies with limited power, you know, studies that were done on an N of three or an N of 12 people. And so they didn't dive deep into those. They wanted to look at um, what they consider to be good studies and kind of summarize what data is available. And we know it's limited because marijuana is a Schedule One drug. It's not easy to get your hands on, even though in certain states now it has been decriminalized or, or even legalized both for medicinal or in certain cases for um, recreational use. It's still f- at the federal level a Schedule One drug. So a lot of you know university laboratories, for example, don't want to go near it or they have a hard time getting high quality marijuana to do their research with. Now, the reason that most people were pissed, I think, about this is, A, apparently (laughs) marijuana cures everything. So when you say that it doesn't, (laughs) people get mad. Um, But also, B, the study that was published in Pediatric Neurology, about half of it details other literature specifically on um, adverse effects, physiological, psychiatric, and functional, like um, uh, imaging studies. So looking at actual changes within the brain. But then the second half of the the publication is about a single case study. The write-up in live science sort of glosses over all of that other stuff and just focuses on the case study. I was actually kind of proud that so many people were pissed when they read this because they were like, this is bad science. You know, the plural of anecdote is not data. I can't believe that you would publish something where, you know, there's not a lot of good um, evidence to back it up. And I'm kind of like, I like I like this, you know, scientific approach to reading these articles online. But I did have to kind of go in and be like, read the source article, read the source article, read the source article, which is sometimes hard to do because they're behind paywalls. But let's go ahead and delve deep into this source article. It starts with a historical perspective. And I think that the authors do a pretty good job of giving a little bit of background on cannabis. I do like, though, that there is... um, There's a quote that I want to pull just from the very beginning of the study. It talks about basically how, you know, cannabis has been touted as curing everything from Parkinson's to PTSD to obesity to cancer, blah, 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 blah. And uh, the author said, quote, it is critical that societal passions not obscure objective assessments of any potential and realize short and long term adverse effects of cannabis, particularly with respect to age of onset and chronicity of exposure. And then they go on to talk about... um, how how they did the review. And I think that's a really important point. Sometimes folk wisdom starts to crowd or shroud our understanding of um, the actual science. So where does the science stand? It's kind of all over the place. But what we did find looking through this is that let's start with one that sticks out the most to me, which would be um, anti-epileptic effects. I think that's the first one that people start to um, tout when getting into the therapeutic benefits of marijuana. A review of the literature on the anti-epileptic effects of cannabinoids concluded, quote, no reliable conclusions can be drawn at present regarding the efficacy of cannabino- uh, cannabinoids. 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 Thank you. You say cannabinoids? Yeah, that's what yep. I've heard as well. Always in the South, people say cannabinoids. I think it's like insurance um, as a treatment for epilepsy. So, 
you know, uh, this is an example of most uh, epilepsy studies had um, low power between 9 and 15 patients, and they also um, concluded were of low quality. Uh, They also found that marijuana that was high in THC may even represent a seizure precipitant, so it may actually induce seizures. Uh, seizures. I think most studies are, are focusing on CBD. Maybe we should draw a distinction here between THC and CBD. Uh, that's uh, cannabidiol is CBD, and then delta-9 tetrahydrocannabidiol is um, THC. Generally speaking, THC is more psychoactive. Um, CBD doesn't seem to have the psychoactive properties, but it has been touted as um, the compound that's mostly used in therapeutic cases because it doesn't actually get you high. It just, for example, in cancer patients can induce appetite. Um, and, and just to be clear, this review never talks about appetite. It never talks about nausea. It never talks about any of the medicinal benefits in that regard. It only focuses on cognitive changes. So yes, so they did find that there is, um, some evidence to show that, um, Kids with refractory epilepsy. So we're talking about children with epilepsy that cannot be treated by any other medication on the market uh, who just keep getting seizures did have a reduction in seizure rate when they took certain compounds of CBD, but they also still had um, aggravated seizures and there was even some levels of death. And it's really hard to tease out if the CBD actually precipitated any of that or if the CBD limited that. So um, that's one of those we sort of need more evidence. Evidence. There's a little bit of a of a hope there with what we with what has been published, but we need to dig a little bit deeper. They then venture into psychosis and other types of neuropsychiatric conditions, and they found that multiple studies have shown correlation between psychotic episodes and marijuana usage, um, especially long term chronic heavy usage and usage in early adolescence. And so they review a few different studies, lots of um, references, like 4,804 references, specifically of individuals um, with schizophrenia. They also review um, a long-term Swedish study, study like a, oh, I'm sorry, a long-term New Zealand study, a longitudinal study, where individuals, um, 1,307 individuals were followed from birth to age 38, and um, their cannabis use was... Uh, tested at 18, 21, 26, 32, and 38. And they had a neuropsych evaluation at 13, so before they started asking about cannabis use, and again at the very last testing. And they found that persistent cannabis use was associated with all sorts of neuropsych deficits across a lot of different domains, and they even controlled for education there. So over the course of um, all these different studies, and I'm leaving a bunch out here, they did find some correlation between neuropsych function and cannabis use. Also in individuals with multiple sclerosis, that's often touted as one where it's like pot can cure MS. But it does seem to be the case that um, individuals who used marijuana versus those who did not had significant differences in verbal and visual memory, information processing speed and attention. Then they move on to talk about the actual physical changes in the brain and 
they mention that based on certain studies and based on the case study that I'm going to get into, they saw significant gray matter changes throughout the brain um, and significant decrease in white matter density um, across uh, multiple studies. So across the board, they're seeing a significant um, change amongst people, again, heavy chronic users of marijuana and those who do not. And they found specifically in the gray matter changes that um, these changes were correlated with big different shape differences in the nucleus accumbens and right amygdala, and that these sort of piggyback previous animal um, studies. So these reward structures seem to be associated. Yeah, it's just a drug. It's a drug that has some properties that are uh, that are potentially useful, fighting nausea, increasing appetite, and pain. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to think that it cures anything. You know what I mean? Exactly. Just, the data yeah. is not there. It's it is like the new herbalism. Uh, David Gorsky has called it that on science based medicine, where it's like, like people that. are imbuing all of these magical properties because there's something whatever unusual about it. But it's just another drug. If you abuse it, if you take it in high doses for a long period of time, there's risks. If you use it, especially the purified form that doesn't have the THC in it, you know, you can, you can, it might have some very interesting and useful clinical applications. Treat it like any other drug. It's not, there's nothing magical about it. Yeah, put it in context. I think the reason people get so up in arms is um, just what you were saying earlier, Evan, about the Barbara Streisand effect. The fact that it's schedule one, which means that it's, illegal to the extent that it's classified as having no medicinal purposes, I think really frustrates a lot of people when they see evidence to the contrary of that. And because something is taboo, then all of a sudden there's all this magical thinking around it. I wonder Mm. if society would change its perceptions, if it could be used more often in clinical trials, and if we did see more of it, like you said, an approach to it as if it's a drug. It's, It's a drug that has some beneficial uses and can be very, very harmful. Well, everyone, we're going to take another break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the Dollar Shave Club. Guys, Mm. yes, you know I love uh, the Dollar Shave Club. I've been talking about them. Even before uh, we we ran ads for them, I was telling you guys you should use them. Um, I wanted to let you know that I love their one-wipe Charlies. Do you know what those are, Evan? No, Jades. Please tell me. Well, think about it. You're in the bathroom, and you know toilet paper's dry, and the one-wipe Charlies are not dry. Wow, refreshing. <laughs> they work. No, they're good. Uh, you know, without going into too much detail, they're they're like baby wipes, but for men. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Manly wipes. <laughs> <laughs> Manly wipes. <laughs> so guys, Dollar Shave Club's got stuff not only for your skin, but for your hair, for your face, well, I guess, which is skin, for your underneath parts, bottom parts, under underside parts, uh, for everywhere to keep <laughs> you feeling and looking fresh. And as you'll soon find out, everything they sell is very affordable. Right now is your chance to see for yourself why so many of us here on the SGU love Dollar Shave Club. If you're not a member yet and you've never joined, now's the time. You'll get your first month of razors for free. All you have to pay is shipping. And after that, it's only a few bucks. So join today by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptics. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. So have you guys ever heard about power poses? Yes, of course. From Uh. you. (laughs) <laughs> no, I've actually I read about them. It's it's it is interesting. Although I I always suspected there there was something not right about it. Yeah. So it's the notion that if you adopt a a pose 
that reflects self-confidence or power, sometimes called expansive poses, then you actually begin to feel more confident and more powerful, and that could act that can affect your behavior in such a way that you can be more successful. You'll take more risks, be more bold, etc. This like the pirate on the bottle of Captain Morgan's spice rum. Is that what we're kind of? Yeah, that could be a power <laughs> Sort of that I hear one about leg it a up. Lot, and... Though in like um, gender equity conversations, yeah. you know, like women, you know, men tend to stand a certain way, and if women adapt those kinds of pose, that you you hear a lot of this like self help garbage right. around that. So that's all bullshit, Steve. Well, <laughs> that is interesting. So the, the the psychologist who developed the notion of power poses, Amy Cuddy gave a TED Talk about it in 2012, and uh, in 2015 published with co-authors a review of the literature of the last you know five to ten years saying, yep, there's pretty solid evidence that power poses is a thing, that there's a, there is a power pose effect. Well, one of her co-authors, uh, Dana Carney, not to be confused with Dana Carvey, <laughs> who <laughs> read my mind, yeah, published mind a too. statement basically saying that she does not think that power poses are real. She thinks that all of the research, including her own review published just a year ago, is bullshit. What, so what changed? What changed her mind? You know, it's the same evidence. Well, it seems to have been changed by uh, Simmons, Nelson, and Simmonson. Those names are about to you guys. Nope. I love that. The Simmons, Nelson, and Simmonson. Simmons, Nelson, and Simmonson. So these are this is the authors of a 2012 paper that we've talked about multiple times on the show about researcher degrees of freedom, uh-huh. or what the, the, a term that I love, the term that's that has been referred to now as p hacking. Yes, um, you guys remember p hacking. So that essentially mm-hmm. these are things that researchers do, maybe innocently, that can manufacture false positive results. It's called p-hacking because like, for example, this is a very common example of it. Let's say you're trying to complete a study and you have limited funding and you want to use your research funding as efficiently as possible. You're not really sure what the effect size is going to be. You have an idea, but you can't be sure because it's research, right? You don't know all the answers. So you're like, okay, let's do 40 subjects. And this could be rats or people or whatever. We'll do 40 you know, things in the study, 40 subjects. And then we'll look at the data and see what we got. If we don't cross over a p-value of 0.05, which is generally used as significance, we'll do another 10 and we'll look at the yeah. data and, and we'll keep doing that until we cross over the 0.05 threshold. Or if we're not getting, making any progress, at some point we'll stop and say that it's negative. Now, to a naive but well-meaning researcher, that may seem legitimate. Like that's you could, something you can do to save money and to be efficient. And as long as you cross over 0.05, your data is real. And interesting. And if it wasn't real, you wouldn't ever cross over the p-value of 0.05. Just by but, adding the individual ends, right? Just by yeah, adding more and more stu- uh, subjects. Keep, so, but yeah, you just keep collecting data until you until you get p- over 0.05, then you publish, right? Mm. You know, remarkably common behavior. But that is cheating. And what uh, Simmons et al. showed was that by doing things like that, uh, you can manufacture – a p-value of 0.05, a false positive, to the 0.05 level 60% of the time with dead negative data. Um, and all you have to do wow. is exploit these, what they call researcher degrees of freedom, deciding when to stop collecting data, deciding what uh, comparisons to make, deciding what uh, variables to look at, and deciding what statistical analysis to use. Now, apparently, 
The same group, Simmons et al., looked at the same data that was reviewed on power poses, and they did what was called a P-curve analysis. They said, all right, let's look at the P-values here and see if they show evidence of P-hacking. And they concluded that they did, and that, in fact, the data was negative once you sort of get rid of the P-hacking effect in the research. Hmm. And they convinced one of the authors, Carney, that, yeah, and she said, you know what? That's what we were doing. We were doing – we were p-hacking. I didn't even realize it at the time, but we were freaking p-hacking. We were- so that's how subtle, I suppose, it can be that the yeah. researchers don't even realize when it's happening. And they don't mean for it to happen, but it happens anyways. Well, it's bad training. It's, you know, it's – you know. Only get so much credit for for coming clean now, but I mean, it's bad research and you should know it. Like, for example, she said, yeah, we did like two different statistical analyses. One was positive, one was negative. We published the positive one, even though the negative one was actually the better analysis to do, the more oh. appropriate analysis. And they knew it, but the, you know, you, you look at the comparisons that look right or look good or make your data look good. So, but every time you do that, you're like giving yourself an extra flip of the coin, you know, and therefore you're changing the odds and therefore that 0.05 becomes meaningless that mm. 0.05 only means something if you decide everything that you're going to do before you look Ahead at a time. single data point if you no change yeah if you exactly if you change any of those decisions after you start collecting data, after you start looking at data, you invalidate the statistics. That's p-hacking. Yeah, or you, or you have to adjust your p-value and make it much more stringent at that. Point. Yes, yeah, you you yeah. you can you can adjust you can like you can adjust for multiple comparisons, for example. Yeah, because like sometimes that's what you'll do, right? You'll have like thirty hypotheses with the same data set, so you just have to have a way more stringent p-value. Right, you actually make statistical fixes for the things mm -hmm. that you do, but it's a lot easier mathematically just to not do that. Just don't do yeah. the p-hacking. Just decide everything up front, and that's why replications are so important. Because if somebody oh, does yeah. an exact replication. They're, all the decisions were made for them, right? They're just doing exactly what you did and seeing if they get the same results. Uh, so in fact, there are, uh, Carney says that she is aware of several failed replications in press, and that's also part of what changed her mind. And well, that- Steve, Shouldn't they get the same results? Why wouldn't they get the same results if they did that, if they did the same things? No, Except they, they, because they're not p-hacking. They're doing, they're, they're replicating the end result of the study, but without the p-hacking, then the effect goes away. Oh, so in they other got words, the same results, Bob. They just weren't significant anymore. Well, meaning that. Is that what you're asking? Like, so think about it this way, Bob, right? Random results are a drunken walk. So yeah. you're you're just – whenever you stumble over 0.05, you freeze at that point and you publish. But if you – if you do the same study, but now it's a different random walk and you're, you're ending at a predetermined time, not when you stumble across 0.05, you're not, your chances are you're not going to be at significance when you stop collecting data. Does oh, that make I sense? Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. But what about this though? Look at it from this angle though. If they did an N of 30 and they didn't get significant statistical significance and they, they changed it to 50 and they did, then if the second, if the replication group goes to 50, I mean, wouldn't they probably get similar results? No, I just explained why. Because you have to think of the random drunken walk. It's the, There's no particular reason why they crossed over the significant level at 50. They were checking as they went along and stopped because that was the point 
where right. they were significant. Mm-hmm. If they had done it, 60 it, or 70, they might have wandered back to not significant again. Gotcha, gotcha. Bob, it's like a football team taking a lead in a game and then determining, game over, we win. Yeah, exactly. No, yes. you have to play to the end of the game. Yeah. <laughs> I love and guess that. what? You may not win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would. Yeah, that's a good. It's a good analogy. If one football team could choose when the game ends, and they could end whenever they're in the lead, they, <laughs> they would, would have always a much, win. They would yeah. have a much greater chance of winning. Much greater chance. Yeah. <laughs> How rampant is p hacking, Steve? It's hard to say, but it's rampant. It's hard to put an exact number on it. In a in a uh, anonymous survey a few years ago. 33 or about a third of researchers admitted to doing p hacking. That's like oh wow! Or, or oh, yeah. they, they knew that. it. They knew yeah. it. <gasps> What's interesting is like the next day, uh, a I wrote a second blog this time about brain training because there was a systematic review that looked at all of the evidence for brain training. This is the brain training is the notion that like with lumosity that Luminosity, if you play certain yeah. games that you'll get smarter, right? That yeah. you play memory games and it'll improve your memory. Just generally speaking, well, what about know, you, love games? You get better yeah. at the game, oh. and that's about it. That that games. one game. Right? The, what the evidence shows is that you get better at the task that you practice, and you get maybe there's a little bit of transference to closely related tasks, but that it doesn't generalize beyond that. There's no effect for general intelligence. What if the what if the task is being smart? Well, that's that's a, <laughs> but yeah. But there is design that game, you know. But the, the point is, there's always challenge something. accepted. Yeah, you got to be doing something specific, and you get good at the specific thing that you do, and very closely related things. So it was a very, it was the same story where there was a lot of crappy research, a lot of false positives, a lot of small effect sizes, a lot of you know small numbers of people in the study, and then when it was all looked at. You see this pattern, right? Oh, crappy studies, which are false positive, and then the better studies are negative. And whenever you see that pattern, that's an effect that's not real. Uh, we see that pattern with ESP, with homeopathy, with acupuncture, sure. with all things that we're pretty sure aren't real and don't exist. And we see the same exact pattern where the, the well-designed, rigorous studies are all negative, And there's a ton of crappy, small poorly controlled studies that you know are just rife with p-hacking and then publication <laughs> bias and also kinds of other things and you get this worthless residue of false positive noise what's good about these two stories happening in close proximity and and also just the way they unfold it is that it really seems like the the scientific community is starting to really internalize this whole notion of p-hacking and that we have to tighten up re, you know research uh, protocols. There was also just a paper published today showing that, in fact, the pressure to publish leads to a lot of false positive crappy studies being published and that, that we need to change the culture in, in science. And you know, we probably should move in Good the direction luck. of publishing fewer, more rigorous studies with you know larger and more subjects. The number of subjects in trials has not increased in the last 50 years. And mm. it, they really, really should be. Uh, I can't tell you how many studies where I see like, and I think, God, what was the point of this study at this late point in this question? Like pretty much every acupuncture study that gets published, they're <laughs> cr- what, why? What's the purpose of another crappy study that is not yeah. definitive, that is not rigorous? The results are just noise in the background. You're just to support adding their to the ideology. Noise. 
Yeah, I mean, part of it is if you know, of course, with the with the fringe pseudoscientific stuff, it's ideological. It's because they're true believers. But I think you know, just in more in general, they're saying even in mainstream science, it's because of the pressure to publish interesting findings. And interesting findings are the ones that are most likely to be not true. And then, of course, if you're trying to get out a lot of papers, you're going to be pushing that edge, you know, of just barely publishable. There's a joke in science about the minimal publishable unit, right? It's like the minimal amount of work that is necessary in order to cross over that threshold to get your your work published, as opposed to think about Darwin, who did 50 years of work and published one book. You know what I mean? I'm not saying we need to go back to that, you know, to that form where we're one publication summarizing years and years and years and years of work. Things move much too quickly now, but there's, we've got to rebalance this. We've got to rebalance this so that the, there's a larger percentage of reliable, replicable studies that are more rigorous. Uh, we have to weed out all of this p-hacking. It really is endemic, and there's just way too much crappy noise in the system. But I do think maybe we're starting to see a little bit of a sea change. I think we have to keep pushing, keep pushing. It's the kind of thing where it could go away if we don't keep it on the radar, on the front burner. So, you know, we just have to keep writing about it, keep paying attention to it. Uh, and and for the public at large, if you're not a scientist, be skeptical, right? I mean, so now you get an idea of this is why when skeptics say, I don't believe in ESP, I don't think that ESP is real. And Daryl Bem and Alex Sakiris and all those people who think that it is real, like, no, but it is. Look at all this evidence. Look at all these studies. They're wrong because they're pointing at crappy studies that are almost certainly overwhelmed with p-hacking and they're not seeing the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that, you know, you never have a, with phenomena that are not real, what you don't get is a large effect size with large signal to noise that is the result of rigorous methodology and that is replicable. You just, you never see all of those things at the same time. That's because it's not real. It's, it's N-rays. We're all, we're still back to N-rays from a hundred mm. years ago. What's actually piling up is negative evidence and they fail to recognize that. They ignore that fact. Yeah. They dismiss the, 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 like the fewer studies that are rigorous and negative. They just find reasons to dismiss those and they point to the pile of crappy studies like homeopaths do that all the time. Well, there's all kinds of studies that show homeopathy works now. Crappy studies, but you have to look at the pattern. <laughs> you have to look at the pattern in the literature and it shows it's compatible with it. No, no effect. It's N rays. There's nothing there. Uh, and that's what skeptics realize. That's what we understand because we look across multiple disciplines and now at all of these emerging studies showing patterns in the research and so that we can know how to tell if something is real versus not real. It turns out brain training and power poses are probably not real. Unless uh, you it, do them at the same time, though. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Two negatives equal positive. You have to do a that's power right. pose while, exactly brain, right. while you're brain training. Yeah. Interesting. It's a, I think it might be the sign that things are changing for the better, but I'm an optimist, so we'll see. Okay, Jay. Jay. Yes. You have his undivided attention. Sorry. What's up, Steve? What can I do for you, doctor? I want you to tell me about this survey about listening to expert opinion. Survey says. A survey was conducted, yes, in January 2016 by NORC, 
NORC, an independent research organization located at the University of Chicago. That's in the United States. Chicago. Yep. (laughs) And they um, they released this on um, on Tuesday. So today is the sixth. So that was um, the fourth. Very good. Of October. Uh, So they did a study with (laughs) a thousand seven people, and four out of five Americans said it's easier to find useful information today than it was five years ago, which was you know the. The study just had a list of conclusions that it came up with, and I was scrolling through them. Here's a couple of more for you. Um, they said that 78% of those people felt that the huge quantity of information can sometimes be overwhelming, which I find consistent with with what I feel as well, that it is kind of overwhelming. And if I hadn't been you know, training myself over the last 20 years or since the beginning of the internet to be, you know, to be very literal about it, I think I would be you know, downright confused about what to trust and what not to trust. I mean, at least I have a lot of ways to get to a place where I feel like I can trust those the, the information. And it takes time, and it's painful. Uh, the study also found that the same people who thought information was at a higher value coming from experts, scientific evidence, or based on government data, um, they also supported Obamacare, same-sex marriage, and the belief that global warming is a fact. And this effect was still there even after they applied controls for demographics and uh, and political party affiliation, which I thought was interesting. So keep this in mind. They did the study in January, and they just published the results this week. And they did that deliberately for two reasons. One, they didn't want the results to be skewed by the raging election. They knew that the election party lines were going to be drawn and that people might be seriously. <laughs> Jay, you Did said you say raging, raging election? election? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said raging election. Exactly. Brilliant. That's Brilliant. awesome. Well, well played, Trump is sir. the tip of this raging election. <laughs> <laughs> he hangs out in the ballroom. Yeah. So he totally lost my train of thought, but they were, so they, they, they published this study now because um, it happens to be the organization's anniversary. I think it's their 75th anniversary, the NORC, NORC. Mm-hmm. So anyway, here's a couple of other interesting things that came out. Um, 90% of all Americans who still read newspapers, what are those, by the way? Uh, they uh, said You wrap fish in them. Exactly. They said that they can completely or mostly trust them as a source of information. And my, my gut reaction to that is, what? Wow. Picking up a, a newspaper and reading it to me, I, my instinct is it's all garbage journalism. Really? Yes. Not me. Yep. That's my instinct. I, I think that print journalism still has kind of a semblance of real integrity to it. I think it's much harder to stay in an echo chamber if you're reading a publication, especially if it's a large publication like a New York Times. Um, if it's your local publication, there's probably going to be some skew depending on your demo, you know, where you live. But I still think that it's um, the newsroom is going to push for the fact that they're still in print means that they're not as beholden to advertising as a digital publication. Yeah. Plus, do you guys remember John Oliver was talking about this? And he said that a lot news outlets, they cite print journalism. I mean, it's it's critical for them. Well, yeah. I, I find it interesting, though, that while reading this and researching this article, I realized that that was my opinion. And then when I tried to substantiate my own opinion, I couldn't. It just it's, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm just let's trip out on that though, because I think that yeah. we draw a lot of conclusions unconsciously, which I find to be really interesting. Because I now you know, hearing what you guys have to say and having some time to think about it, I have to second guess why my gut clicked into that position. I don't even know how it got itself there. 
Um, mm. th- there was one one more piece of information I could keep going, Steve, but there was one more that I'd really like to talk about. So listen to this conclusion. They said Americans are more likely to gather new information for purchasing decisions than for deciding where they stand on national issues. 85% do so often or sometimes for products compared to 72% for national issues. But in both domains, Americans rely on their instincts to help navigate the information environment. Americans are most likely to seek out new information when they have a gut feeling to be skeptical. Furthermore, when they encounter conflicting information about products or policies, they tend to seek additional information and rely on their instincts to determine which information to trust. I found that point that the study concluded to be one of the most interesting, partly because it is kind of going on what I was saying before about you know the gut feeling, and they even say they have a gut feeling to be skeptical. I think well, I think this is totally in line. This whole survey is completely in line with our previous discussions about the Dunning-Kruger effect and follow-up articles that Dunning has written, where he basically says that what's happening is that there all kinds of information is out there, right? The good information is out there, and biased and misleading information is out there, and so people feel that they're well informed on everything. Because they can find easily find information to back them up, but they're yeah. not necessarily really well informed. They're just feeding whatever their gut instinct is telling them is probably true, and they're finding things to back up what they already believe. Yeah. So the net effect for a lot of beliefs is just increasing our confidence that we're informed, even when we're not. But when it comes to things that where there isn't a huge bias or ideology like purchasing something, people are fairly adept at finding information and being skeptical and evaluating that information to make their purchasing decisions. But if they're trying to find out is global warming real, echo chamber, you know, they yeah, just find exactly. the information that supports what they want to believe and then they feel well informed even though they're not. So one of the most important things that I learned in this whole process of, of, you know, wanting to be a skeptical activist and then learning about critical thinking, learning about science communication, and this giant bag of humility that had to come with it in order to do this effectively. You know, that humility that allows you to just say, wow, why do I think that? You know, and, and realizing that you don't have a real reason to have a, an opinion and then being able to change your mind and having your mind open to new information. And then the big thing for me was to refine my skills at weeding through. Like my baloney detector is so active. It's active all the time now. Yeah. And it's powerful and it, and it's constantly getting better as the years go mm-hmm. by. And yeah, you got to treat everything like you're buying something. Yeah. Right. Yep. It, that's that's a good first sort of approach. Think about it like you're about to spend a lot of money on some product, and of course people are trying to sell you bullshit. They're trying to you know convince you that their product is correct, and but there's some other company that says that their product is the best. And how would you approach that before you spent a huge amount of money? That's how you should approach you know wh- whether or not you should accept global warming as a, as real, right? Yeah. That'd be better than what most people do, which is this is what I want to feel, so I'm going to listen to the people who. You agree with me. You know. Well, so my, my one final point uh, to continue on what I was saying, like I, I find it it feels very liberating to know I'm not passionless, but I don't care about these individual pieces of information so much. Right. Like tomorrow, I could change my mind about anything, homeopathy, global warming, the election, whatever, uh, with better information and with, you know, with, you know, of course, getting getting inside where I will believe it and trust it. That's that's the hard part. But if I do trust the information, I can change my mind on anything. 
Yeah, they, but yeah. I, I would qualify that as saying if you're if you already have an opinion that is built upon a mountain of evidence, it will take an equal amount of evidence to move you off of that opinion, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm going to read one study and go, oh, maybe evolution isn't real. You know, I, I've <laughs> already read so much information and vetted it so carefully that, uh, and this is what people generally do. This is. Uh, by the way, the Bayesian approach, right? You yes. take a new piece of information, you incorporate it into your existing pieces of information, and you adjust your belief. But one tiny piece of information doesn't trump a thousand solid pieces of information. That that would be ridiculous. And so, yeah, we, while we say, sure, I would change my opinion about anything, that's with the caveat that some things are really well established, and it will take a lot of compelling information to move us off of you know, where we already are. Which is why we're so confident with it. Yeah, it's confidence based upon a process and on actual reliable information. Yeah, and there are uh, certain things we talk about on the show that are like that. You know, we talk about evolution, we talk about homeopathy, things where there's like a, a ton of evidence that shows where we fall on one yeah. side of the or the other. And then there are other things, like we were just talking about marijuana today, where there's still not a lot of good evidence, and we yeah. need to see better research so that we can make a stronger um, conclusion. Yeah, that's a good one. That's one where I would mm-hmm. change my mind every time I read a study. I'd probably yeah. adjust my opinion about it because it's, it's kind of floating anyway, because there's not a lot of good evidence. Yeah. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. Who's That Noisy? Here we go. Last week I played <laughs> This Noisy. Wasn't that when they were communicating with the aliens on Close Encounter? <laughs> no, that was da, da, <laughs> da, da, da. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember that? So don't feel bad, Steve. Yeah. Nobody got this. Nobody guessed it. No. Oh. There's like three people really? that know who this is <laughs> and what it is. Uh, this is uh, – so long before there was GPS navigation, we had two things called Omega and Lauren navigation systems. Now, this was the Omega system. It was worldwide terrestrial navigation operated jointly by the U.S. coast, Australia, Norway, Liberia, Argentina, France, and Japan. And it operated the VLF frequency range 10, 14K hertz. 10-14K kilohertz, Omega ended operation in 1996. No guesses, no bad guesses, just nothing. So what, Jay, this this is a ground-based like GPS system? There weren't satellites? It was just using towers or something? I, I wouldn't call it a GPS system. It was a navigation system. And this was sent in uh, by the listener that did not want me to use his real name. And I have a fake name, Alex, here for him. <laughs> so that, that was cool. Interesting little noise. <laughs> Um, for some That's reason, pretty obscure. That's but pretty obscure. It is, but I do like these weird noises um, from the past. Like I love old, you know, like the, of course the big one is the internet dial-up. Like I love stuff like that from the, you know, older original technology. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to this week's noisy, I have something awesome. And uh, the awesome part of it will be when we talk about it next week and I'll, and I'll give you um, a lot, a lot of cool information about about what it is and more stuff. Um, so check this one out. It was fantastic, yeah. Yeah, still German, but in the books in money, Citology, Gerald, the Fed, and Gekko, Kennedy, it's all. I'm pretty, I'm You think you know what it is, but you don't know what it is. You don't know, I'm telling you. I challenge, I challenge all of our listeners this week. If you know what that is, email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. If you don't know what that is, but you have a good noisy, send the send it to me at that address, and uh, 
Just so you guys know, Charlie from Google sent us this one. Cool. Charlie from Google. That's my only hint. That is a Thanks, hint. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. Charlie. All right. <laughs> you can't help it. No, That's can't. it. I mean, I we're feel bad for now. everybody named Charlie. Kara, do you know the <laughs> meme? Charlie, you bit Which my mean? finger, Charlie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Charlie bit my finger. Okay. Uh, yes, I definitely know Charlie bit my finger. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, Kara, what's the word? word. The Sentine. word this week <laughs> is ultra crepidarian. And if you didn't know, because why would you unless you are really into counting things? Tonight is my 50th what's the word? Wow. 5-0. Is that crazy? Holy crap. Are you sure? I do. I am absolutely sure because I have a list of all of them. We are on number 50. Um, So Ultra Crepidarian. This was actually recommended by three different listeners. Andrew from Plano, Texas. Hi, Andrew. That's my hometown. Um, Robert from Melbourne, Australia. And most recently, John, also from Melbourne. Do you guys know each other? It's weird. All right. Here's the definition. According to the Oxford Dictionary... Ultra crepidarian is both a noun and an adjective referring to the act of or a person who. So an ultra crepidarian is a person or you can have an ultra crepidarian action. But it refers to a one who expresses opinions on matters outside the scope of their knowledge or expertise. So, I mean, this is really good for the skeptic toolbox. It's a great word. Yeah, it's a great word, but it's also one where it's hard not to fall victim to it. I mean, mm-hmm. by definition, everybody here on the Skeptics Guide is an ultra crepidarian because we definitely cover stories that we don't have expertise on. That said, it's more about expressing opinions and and kind of making judgments about these things. So, like you know, technically on the low end of the spectrum, we're all crep- ultra crepidarians. But we also see what happens when egregious examples of ultra crepidarianism hit the media. You guys remember when our friend actually Neil deGrasse Tyson got a ton of backlash after tweeting about evolutionary biology and sex. People yeah. were none none too pleased for him mm. stepping outside of his field of expertise. So that would would have been an ultra crepidarian act. Well, and getting it wrong. It wasn't and getting it wrong. Yeah, it's okay usually if you get it right, that. people don't notice. <laughs> yeah, you have usually it's okay to do that if you get it right. But <laughs> but I do think there. I think that there is a connotation there, Kara. Correct me if I'm wrong. Of stepping outside your area of expertise with unjustified confidence. It's funny because the Oxford Dictionary definition does not imply that, but all of the American Dictionary definition that I looked at do. They kind of imply um, an unjustified judgment. So I do think there is a connotation there that it's, you know, not something you should be doing. Um, Otherwise, we're just journalists, right? If we're just doing science communication, of course, you know, we're going to be talking about things that we're not experts in. Yeah, Yeah. we absolutely have to. But I guess if we talked about those things and then we were like, and my opinion is, and it was like unfounded and kind of overreaching, then we might be able to put it in that bucket. You you know what I find myself doing a lot when I I Mm. kind of relay an interesting factoid um, I will often, you know, say, you know, I will say things like, you know, I read that five years ago. I haven't, I haven't read it since, or I read this in, in at this, you know, on this website, whatever. I always try to, you know, the more outlandish the fact or the idea that I'm relating, yeah. I always yeah. try to say, this is, this is how old this memory is, or this is where I learned it. So, so take that into account. My problem is I am full of outdated information. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Because I, yeah, I went to medical school. I learned all of medicine, and you know, twenty years ago, and and yeah. 
anything outside of my current practice area of expertise, I feel like I understand it, but it's outdated, you know? Yeah. And I guess that doesn't, it's probably less of an application if you're, if your understanding is just outdated and needs some focus than if you're like full on trying to give advice, like dental advice, you know, or something that's, you know, uh, law advice or something. So I love, I love the etymology of this because I think it perfectly describes the term itself. It's from the Latin ultra, meaning beyond, and crepidarius, meaning shoemaker. So its earliest documented use in English was in 1819 by the essayist William Hazlitt, but it actually goes way way older than that. And why beyond shoemaker would make any sense, here's the story. There's a writer in Rome named Pliny the Elder in the year 77 oh, yeah. Isn't AD. It Pliny? Oh, is it no, Pliny? I think I heard Pliny and I Oh, I Pliny. I heard Pliny. I heard Pliny. I'm Pliny. Say Pliny. <laughs> Pliny. Pliny. Plato, Mr. P so the Christ. Elder in the year 77 <laughs> he wrote a, a tome called Natural History. And in this tome he details the story of Apelles, a Greek painter who would display his works on the street and then hide nearby to hear what people said about them. One time, a cobbler pointed out that the sole of the shoe was not painted correctly. Apelles fixed it and then put the painting back out. And when the cobbler saw this, he was like bolstered with confidence and started commenting on other parts of the painting. Then according to Pliny or Pliny the Elder, um, the painter, Apelles, responded, Sutor ne ultra crepidam, which translates to the cobbler should not judge beyond the sandal. So the English uh-huh. adage, cobbler stick to your last, is a similar translation. Don't go yeah. talking about stuff you don't know. Right. That's right. interesting. Yeah, I like it. I love these. Be- I love when the etymology has like this beautiful um, story behind it. When you can, because in those cases, it's much easier, I think, for etymologists to specifically and linguists to point to specific moments in history when um, language was born, as opposed to this kind of slow functional change because multiple different areas had similar root words for those right. things. Right. So yeah, it's kind of beautiful. Cool. Yeah. Ultra crepidarian. I love it. Yeah, it's a good one to throw out there every now and then. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, it's a really pedantic word to use, let's be sure. honest. Sure. <laughs> That's why it's so wonderful. Yeah. It really is. You can insult somebody to their face and they won't even realize it. And they'll say, thank you. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people writing to me about the solar, putting solar panels oh, on yeah. my roofing, which is great. And I do want to continue this as a story as I sort of, I'll be tracking my, you know, how much electricity I'm generating and all that. And when there's interesting tidbits, I may bring it up again. But one email I want to focus on this week, this comes from Eric in Lehigh, Utah, who writes, I did this a few years ago and discovered this catch. The panels generate electricity all day long and you have to buy it. If it generates more than you use, it's put back into the grid and you get a credit for it. But there is a large difference between the price at which you buy the electricity and the credit you get from the power company. So you're selling it at a massive loss. If you produce a lot more than you use, you're losing money like crazy. And there are all kinds of provisions in the contract about not blocking the panels so that they generate less power, etc. Just a heads up. Ooh. Okay. That doesn't sound like what the deal I signed up for, so I investigated it further. Mm-hmm. What Eric is talking about essentially is the net metering rules for your particular state. 
it, oh, now, so it's a state thing. It's not it's like a state, scammer well, thing. In the United States, it's state by state, right? All of these rules for putting up solar panels on your roof. And there's something called net metering, which is essentially you selling the any electricity that you produce that you don't use back to the electric company. I have a link to a website that grades all 50 states, and you could probably get similar information for your country uh, about this. They give states an you know A, B, C, D, or F grade. Connecticut is got to, has an A. Yeah, uh, nice. Good. Yeah. Utah had an F, but was upgraded huh. to an A when they changed their laws. So I don't know if Eric was talking about back in the battle days. What a oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Well, because they, they passed a law, it's all about what the law says. So mm-hmm. the the net metering will uh, involve things like you know, does the company, does the utility company have to put in a two way meter? Uh, what kind of credit do you get for it? Who owns it? There is something called safe harbor provisions. Uh, what about rollover? You know, if they give you credits, do those credits roll over? Capping how much they will take. You know, they might say, yeah, we'll take it, but only up to this certain amount and everything else is wasted. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you have good net metering laws, the ideally the, power company would give you a one-for-one credit for everything you produce that you don't use without a limit and without any uh, limit on rollover. Nice. Yes. Yeah. No cap and no and no they don't vanish in the ether if you don't use them up at some point. If you have all of those things and you get an A, right? So in my situation, uh, the United Illuminating gives me a one-for-one credit for everything I every kilowatt hour I produce that I don't use. Good. And then I can use those credits when I need to draw off the grid when I'm not producing electricity, when I'm using more than I'm producing, then I use they use the credits. And as long as it all averages out over a year, then I'm fine. Yeah. I, I think the only restrict restriction is they don't roll over from year to year, but they do from month to month, which obviously they have to because some months I'm going to overproduce and other months I'm going to underproduce. Because of the weather, you know, just because the with the changing seasons, so it has to average out over the course of the year. That's kind of the point. But anyway, it's a one for one credit. But that, but that's an excellent uh, point to bring up. And if you are thinking about doing this kind of deal, whether you're owning them or or leasing or just buying the electricity, you have to look at the details and the rules in your state are the most important. There are eight states that have an F, like Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma. Uh, Georgia, uh, Wisconsin. Well, Wisconsin has a D. What's California? California has an A. Arizona, okay. California, Colorado, Connecticut. They did it alphabetically, but including uh, Utah, Vermont, D.C. So if if you just look up your state's grade, your state's net metering laws, and uh, they should be favorable. If they're not, write your representative because you know this is the, easy it. to change, very easy yeah. to change. Uh, and there's now this sort of evolving standard as to what a good net metering law is. So the states who are behind the times just need to get with it. Um, and then, cause otherwise you do get screwed, right? If you're, you know, can't get credit for all the electricity you produce, right. you absolutely will be screwed. Uh, and it is very hard to have enough battery backup that you're totally independent of the grid. That's not really practical with our current battery technology. Uh, maybe it will be eventually, but uh, but not at this point in time. And if you live in a state like Arizona, it's critical because you're probably way overproducing because it's such a sunny state. You definitely want to get credit for all the electricity that you're producing. 
All right, so that's a good question. And there probably will be more follow-ups like that because there's a lot of lot of details to unpack here. But I do think this is a good opportunity to like really explore the whole world of going solar. So that's part of the reason why I'm doing this. Partly I wanted to do it, but I think it's also something that will trigger a lot of conversations. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. <laughs> there is always something new to learn with The Great Courses Plus. Just go check out the free course that you'll get if you sign up. It is awesome. Steve has two courses on there. Do we need to say anything else? I would tell you that one of my favorite courses is Dark Matter, Dark Energy, The Dark Side of the Universe. It's by Darth friend Vader. of the show. <laughs> <laughs> friend of the show, Darth Vader. No, friend of the show, Sean Carroll. Yeah, and Sean. he really digs into what we know to be true about the universe versus what we believe and speculate to be true. You know, that every particle ever detected is believed to only make up 5% of the universe and the other 95% is believed to be dark matter and dark energy. Blows the mind. That it does. And you can watch Sean Carroll's course or all of the courses so many different ways, anytime, anywhere. Use your smartphone, use your tablet your laptop, your TV, your desktop. You can watch the courses all at once or resume later at your schedule. You can watch all the courses at the same time? Absolutely. <laughs> if you have enough devices, you could. And we want you to sign up for the Great Courses Plus today because they're giving our listeners a very special offer. Get an entire month of unlimited access to all the lectures for free. So don't wait. Start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Yes. All yes. right. I think so. Good. Item number one, a new analysis of centaurs, 44,000 objects orbiting between Jupiter and Neptune, concludes that they are mostly the remains of a single failed or destroyed protoplanet. Item number two. A recent review conducted by the Chinese State Food and Drug Administration found that 80% of clinical trial data submitted to them over the course of a year was fabricated, incomplete, or untraceable. And item number three, the Hubble Space Telescope has detected, in quotes, cannonballs of plasma twice the mass of Mars being ejected from a red giant star. Kara, go first. Okay, here we go centaurs but not like the what are centaurs are they the the cow uh, head man half, body half man half horse horse is it it's half, a horse body people, man man top horse. right yes it's uh oh, from minotaur. the waist up it's is a the, human minotaur is bullhead man body. minotaur is bullhead and centaur right. is human body human weight human head human from the waist up and yeah. horse uh from the neck yeah end. just replace the horse's head with a human torso with and, a human uh, torso above. yes yeah. And or 44,000 objects orbiting between Jupiter and Neptune. Mostly the remains of a single failed or destroyed protoplanet. I could see that. Like there are times when we find that a whole cluster of, you know, space debris or space space matter is all from one impact. 
A recent review conducted by the Chinese State Food and Drug Administration found that 80% of clinical trial data submitted to them was fabricated and complete or untraceable. 80%. I hope that's not true. Um, and Hubble has detected cannonballs of plasma, twice the mass of Mars being ejected from a red giant. Ugh, I don't know, Steve. These all seem reasonable to me. Plasma does come out of stars. Um, or stars are made of plasma. Um, twice the mass of Mars. Mars is pretty small. A red giant's pretty big. Hubble, that seems like something Hubble could see because it goes deep space. I mean, the Chinese Food and Drug Administration one sounds the most crazy, which means it's probably f- science. Ugh. I'm going to say that the centaurs are the fiction, that something in there, it's not really 44,000 objects or it's the remains of multiple failed somethings. I don't know. This is a shot in the dark, but I'm going to say centaurs are the fiction. Okay, Bob. All right. The cannibals, that's just too cool not to be true. Um, wow. That's that's fantastic. I, I just want that to be, to be true. Um, so I'm going to say that's science. Chinese State Food and Drug Administration. So, I mean, this just seems so obvious that 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 would happen there. There's been there's so much reported fraud and all this stuff. It's just like that just makes so much sense to me. But I'm so on the fence because it makes a lot of sense. But does it make too much sense? Is it? I don't know how you're playing it. You could play it either way. So let's go to the the, other, the first one, uh, the centaurs. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could see this going either way. You, you know, I could see. I don't know enough about the orbits of the centaurs to to determine whether. The orbits make sense for a single object um, or not. I just don't know. So it could kind of go either way. But I think the only way they could really determine that, though, was by the orbit because we don't know what the hell they're made of, not in in any detail. Yeah, 44,000 centaur objects. Yeah, what the hell? I'll say that's the fiction. Ugh. Okay. (laughs) All right, Jay. Yeah, it's it's horrifying to think that the uh, the Chinese Food and Drug Administration is saying that eighty percent. Oh my God! But if it's happening anywhere, I guess it would be happening in China. But that's a I don't like that. You know what I mean? Like the Chinese Food and Drug Administration is probably getting submissions from all sorts of insanely ridiculous things. You know what I mean? There's like so much pseudoscience there. To clarify, this is this is for drugs. This is not yes. for other things. Yeah, but people could be putting up anything to be for to get passed as a drug. Yeah, but it's as a drug, just to clarify. This is not for other things. Yeah. Gotcha. Fabricated, incomplete, or untraceable. This is Bob's sex life. Um so, Aww, so mean. Wow. Sorry. You know so little. <laughs> Great <Bob>. comeback. <laughs> the Hubble, the Hubble, what can the Hubble not see? Um, sure, cannonballs of plasma shooting out of some giant red star the size of Mars. I completely buy it. Phil Plate would completely agree that insanely scary shit like this is happening on a daily basis. Yeah, I'm kind of agreeing with you guys. Like, I don't know, I don't even know if I understand what this first news item is saying. So, <laughs> I, like, whatever. Like, there's a centaur, something to do with Jupiter and Neptune. I am agreeing with you guys. I'm, I'm going with the group, GWG. <laughs> okay. Evan? Well, um, I've never heard of centaurs in this context before. Yes, you have. Uh, have I? 
We've talked about them on the show before. What no. the hell? Have how, we? How could I realize only now that critical bit of information? Oh, I would have remembered that. Orbiting between Jupiter and Neptune. How did I? My brain totally made that invisible. That's like <laughs> okay. important. That's important. I mean, we're talking about some pretty big plans, wouldn't they? I probably like, wouldn't swallowed have. Swallowed up a lot of these things. That's a defined orbit. I probably would not have picked that as fiction. If I actually read the damn words. It's um, never mind, continue. Mostly the remains of a single failed or destroyed protoplanet. See, I think I think that's the catch here. How do how do they how do they know that? Uh, a failed it certainly pro- is the catch there. That is that that's the rub. Yeah, the Chinese thing, okay, eighty percent sure. I can I can actually believe that. And then cannonballs, like Bob said, too cool not to be Science. So therefore, I go with everybody. I'll jump okay. off the cliff. We lose. None of you guys sound very confident this week. Though. <laughs> I, we, I set the tone. Uh, when did we? When did we talk about centaurs before on the show? Oh, it's come up. Definitely before I joined. I've never heard Whoa. of space centaurs, but that's amazing, space and there centaurs. should be a comment. <laughs> yeah, all right. Centaurs in space. Well, let me. I let's, think you swept us. Let's. Star with number three, the Hubble Space Telescope was detected, has detected cannonballs of plasma twice the mass of Mars being ejected from a red giant star. You guys all think that one is science because it's too cool not to be. And that is science. (laughs) That is cool Hubble science. So, yeah, this is the first time. And just imagine these just like, you know, balls of plasma twice the mass of Mars shooting out of a star. And not just that, shooting at a half a million miles an hour. Yeah. Half a million miles an hour. Uh, oh, someone read that. Gee, Bob, did you read this? <laughs> so, That's for those. Sh- oh, my God. Yeah, it's yeah. cool. So, this is what they think is happening. <laughs> as long as it's not you know, Bob, Bob read it, obviously, so he knows. But what do you guys, Jay, tell me, what do you think? How is this happening? How is a star just. So, there's a red giant star that's shooting these. Gigantic balls of plasma the size of planets. Yeah. That's what it says. <clears throat> it's destabilizing. That's a good vague answer. So <laughs> this is what they think. This is what they think. That it's probably a uh, – there's a companion star, right? So you have two stars orbiting each other. Uh, so remember, Red Giant is a star at the end of its lifetime where it, it gets big and big and big and big and it gives off a lot of its mass. It becomes very diffuse, right? Tenuous. Yes. So it, it's possible that the companion star actually orbits within the surface of the red giant. It's in an elliptical, elliptical orbit and it's actually, dra- you know, plowing through this now greatly enlarged surface of, of its red giant companion. And when it comes through the other end, it's dragging a lot of plasma. And then when it emerges, it shoots off that plasma in this giant ball. You know, with twice the mass of Mars, and then it does that every eight uh, years. Eight, yeah, eight and a half eight years. Eight and a half years, and that's how long the orbit is. You know, so that's that's what it's saying. So that's cool. That is so, so damn cool. I was perfectly crazy. right. Yeah, I I was hoping it was some futuristic weapon. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would wipe us out. Talk about a CMB. Damn. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not a CMB. I always mess that CME. up. CME. Coronal mass ejection? Yes, that's what I meant. Yeah. You confuse it with the cosmic microwave background. Cosmic microwave background, yes. Okay, let's go to number one. 
Oh boy, oh boy. A oh new boy. analysis no. of centaurs. Oh, no. You said oh, too Kara. much. Stop there. Sweet. It doesn't mean anything. A new analysis of centaurs, 44,000 objects orbiting between Jupiter and Neptune, concludes that they are mostly the remains of a single failed or destroyed protoplanet. It's interesting, Bob, that you just didn't pick up on the between Jupiter and Neptune. I, Why do you think Steve, that was? I, I don't know. I don't know why I would have missed it because that's key because for me – It is key. It, it, it is absolutely because key. It's a, it's a defined orbit. Now, I, based on what you're saying right now, I, I'm thinking that maybe I was right. But I still think I, I could potentially be very wrong because that's a defined orbit. Jupiter and Neptune uh, could have uh, could have broken up this planet and, and created this debris field. I mean, it makes perfect sense, much more than I thought. Mm. So uh, – I still think it's wrong. I'm not convinced. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well – this one talked about is the fiction. Yes. You are correct. Wow. Yeah. You guys are what? all correct. I'm glad oh. I didn't read it. My mind was saying, Bob, <laughs> don't read that. It'll mess you up. No, but if you – if the, the fact that they're between Jupiter and Neptune is critical to why this has to be fiction. Really? Oh. Yes. Whoa. Do tell. Because, Bob, critical. there's two other planets between Neptune and Jupiter, right? Saturn and Uranus. And so you have – these are objects orbiting essentially within these four gas giants. Right. So their orbits are incredibly unstable. Uh, they, their orbits are inherently unstable and they only last for millions of years before they get kicked out of the solar system or get kicked into the inner solar system and become comets or crash into a planet. Mm-hmm. So these are constantly being refed probably from the Kuiper Belt. These are probably Kuiper Belt objects that get kicked into this inner orbit or you know between Jupiter and Neptune. They're called centaurs because they are hybrids of comets and asteroids. It's a hybrid. Yeah. They're like comets and asteroids mixed, so they call them centaurs because so it's a hybrid. Oh, that's funny. Kind of yeah. icy okay. icy rocky balls. Mm. Yeah. So there are 44,000 of them, but there's no way this was one single planet that broke up or never formed because they, you know, that would imply from early in the solar system they never would have survived that long. These are, these are all just Kuiper belt objects being fed in and they're in unstable orbits that don't last very long. Some of them are really big. So they can get pretty big. Some of them, they're called minor planets is the other name for them. Minor planets. These are, and the 44,000, those are 44,000 that are larger. Than one kilometer in diameter. Whoa! And the, oh, so there's even more objects. There's more that are smaller. Yeah, the largest confirmed centaur is 10199 Cariclo, which is 260 kilometers in diameter. Wait, every centaur has a name? No, no. But a lot of them do. A lot of the bigger ones do. Uh, so that's you know that's 260 kilometers. That's as big as they would say a mid-sized main belt asteroid. How big is Pluto? Two thousand. Three hundred and seventy-four kilometers. And how and how big was the biggest um, centaur? One hundred and twenty-eight. Oh, oh yeah, that was much. Bigger. Not even close. Yeah, <laughs> okay. much not even close. Nah. Yeah. But there was a news. There was a news item with respect to centaurs. But I had to make something the fiction, so I made up the whole bit about the protoplanet. So we know already, and I think this is what we talked about before on the show, that some of the centaurs have their own rings. They have their own oh, ring yes. systems, like magic yes. rings. Like the yeah, they have rings around them, like the rings around Saturn, and that's because every time they get close to one of the big giants, they get ripped apart, and part of their that material can can survive as a small moon or as a ring around the center. So these are like asteroid-like objects that either have their own moons 
or may have their own ring system. So the the new bit is um, since the, if more than one have been discovered with rings, then astronomers are trying to model how this could happen, and that's what they came up with that this is happening because of close approaches to the to the gas giants, and that they predict as many as ten percent of the centaurs will have rings. They should call them collars, Whoa. not rings. Collars <laughs> makes more sense. Yeah, because you put a collar around a centaur. <laughs> <laughs> Tell that to yeah, the uh, International you. Astronomical Union, Evan. Centaur could wear a ring. It's got Consider a man. It it's got a man top hat. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. which so means you guys, were, <laughs> you guys were all correct, even though yes. you didn't really yes. know what you were talking Suss about. Okay, you're but, welcome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's. Oh, thanks, Kara. Let's. Uh, yep. This all means, of course, that a recent review conducted by the Chinese State Food and Drug Administration found that 80% of clinical trial data submitted to them over the course of the year of review that they were reviewing was, quote-unquote, fabricated, incomplete, or untraceable. 80% of the drug trials submitted to them for approval when they looked at them. You know, either the data was clearly made up. Sometimes they know it was made up because the study was written before they collected data. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's kind of a giveaway. That's a big clue right there. Yeah, that's a big (laughs) clue. Now, I think the reason why the number is so high, there's a couple of reasons why the number is very high. One is because fraud is rampant in China, you know, fraud and abuse like that. Uh, They clearly have a problem. And you know they they acknowledge that this is part of that. Uh, but the other reason is that a lot of these drugs are already approved in the West, and so mm. there may be this feeling that well we don't have to really study it. This drug's already available in the United States. We're just going to re- reformulate it, combine it with something else or whatever, put it in our own thing, and we just need to get approval to sell it in China. It's like, oh, we have to do our own research on it. So China. in China. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we're going to uh, – so they, they cheat. You know, they write the report. Then they say, okay, yeah, I guess we have to go through the motions of collecting some data. But they're trying to do it on the cheap because they feel like they don't really need to do that. But still, that's totally unacceptable. You know, they have oh. to show that their own manufacturing is legitimate and safe and they're getting the same chemical and the chemicals working. Like in this in this study, in this country, if a drug goes off patent and another company wants to produce a generic version of it, they don't have to reproduce all of the research, but they have to show that it's equivalent. You know, they have to do studies and submit data to the FDA showing that they're producing an equivalent chemical that has the same you know properties, pharmacokinetics, sure. et cetera, of the of the brand name drug that they are uh, replacing. So um, any, in any case, this is horrible. Uh, but Gosh, it was I'm kind of su- surprised. Is their FDA government run? Like oh, their yeah. version of the FDA? It is? I'm actually surprised that they released this information. That's yeah, the only too. surprising thing about this is that it was... I know. <laughs> yes, no, but it leaked. That, that, what I, that's the name. I was quoting the name, not just describing it. It is the Chinese State Food and Drug Administration. That's the oh, name okay. of the organization. Yeah, that's their FDA. It's their CSFDA. Isn't this the country where they faked fake eggs? <laughs> there was a fake of the fake eggs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> well, this is also the country where they found that they were putting melamine into baby formula, and the oh guy who was the head of the CSFDA when that was happening got his head chopped off for that. They <gasps> executed him for that Jesus and put him Christ. in something. So there was that's what they were saying to the world. Okay, we're gonna like fix this problem, kill that guy, and then <gasps> save problem oh, solved. No. We're not putting, you know. 
toxic plastic into baby formula anymore. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, he needed to die. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. God. (laughs) That guy ruined the whole operation. (laughs) It didn't mean that. It's horrible. I mean, it's from beginning to end. I mean, the whole thing is just, uh, yeah, scandalous. Okay. Okay, strangely believable, <laughs> that one. I'm so sad. <laughs> All right, well, good job, everyone. Thank you, you Steve. Thank guys. you. Yes, well. You backed I into that one this along. week. Yeah. Sensors, of course. <laughs> uh, all right, Evan, give us a quote this week. This is a bittersweet quote. Yeah, this is a bittersweet one, like you said. There is nothing dull about a life without fairies, Easter bunnies, devils, ghosts, magic crystals, etc. Life is only boring to boring people. Well, well said by our friend, our departed friend now, Robert Todd Carroll. For those of you who don't know, Robert Todd Carroll is the author of a fantastic book known to many skeptics called The Skeptic's Dictionary. In fact, it was one of the first books I think I bought on skepticism. And if you've ever looked up the Skeptic's Dictionary online, uh, that is, of course, Robert Todd Carroll's uh, work. It's what he is certainly most was most known for. And I say was because he, he died uh, at the end of August to the you know bitter surprise to many, many people in the skeptical community. We Only days ago, we, we really found out that this had happened. So we lost Robert Todd Carroll recently and uh you know a great loss he made very very good contributions to to skepticism and the skeptical movement yeah he was one of these unsung heroes if you will of the skeptical movement just working tirelessly on a massive project i mean the skeptics dictionary is a really great resource i reference it all the time uh, all the time yeah but he really wasn't i mean he was known he definitely was known and definitely got credit but you know not somebody who went out of his way to you know put himself out there i think he, he the amount of work that he did was under recognized within the skeptical community and you know kind of similar you know he died in august and i i'm just hearing about it you know this week maybe we're more out of the loop than we thought we were but usually we get like a million emails about things like that and it seems like everyone just sort of heard that he because we got emails you know uh, it just like it seems like word just got out, you know that that right. he had passed away in August. It's one of the top three websites I think I've gone to since we've started the Skeptics Guide to sure. the Universe, the the wow. online Skeptics Dictionary. I mean, just about every week I am in I am in there, uh, reading stuff. Steve and Steve, he references you quite a bit, um, and links to your uh, articles and blogs and and, and things. Um, so he certainly was a friend of this podcast. He will be missed by the entire community. Yeah, it's a great resource. It's like everything together in a dictionary or it's really more of an encyclopedia. But even though he calls Mm -hmm. it the Skeptics Dictionary, because I think it started as like defining homeopathy, defining these things, but it really kind of evolved into an encyclopedia of these topics that we talk about, well-referenced, updated. You know, again, it was a huge chunk of work. Uh, Really, his life's work for the skeptical community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very impressive. Okay, well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, man. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. And and until (laughs) next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. 
You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.